0: This is the Cater Daily Podcast for Friday, October 12, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. Native American tribes are supposed to be sovereign. They are far from it. Terry Anderson is one of the founders of the Alliance for Renewing Indigenous Economies. We spoke about the price that Native Americans pay for the false promise of sovereignty on tribal lands. When we think about economic development, Uh, It's not that we should be thinking about mere dollars and the collection of dollars and uh, growth in some particular enterprise. Economic development is about the process of expanding options and expanding choices for people to develop themselves economically. What has been the story of uh, indigenous peoples of Native American tribes in the United States for the last uh, you know, 150 years or so with respect to economic development.
1: Let me start even before 150 years by saying that indigenous people around the world and certainly here in North America have enjoyed economic development as you've described it. Uh, they had the freedom to uh, travel, to trade, uh, to engage in whatever enterprises they wished. Uh, I use those words because they were words that Chief Joseph uttered in 1879 here in Washington, D.C. after his band had been uh, captured 40 miles from Canada where they were trying to escape for asylum. Uh, So prior to the colonization that they've had, they enjoyed economic development. Uh, I like to say that they didn't just survive, they prospered. Since then, however, all of the aspects of freedom that Chief Joseph called for and all of the aspects of economic development, meaning expanded options, have been limited and constrained in ways that they simply can't enjoy. What economic development can bring, that said, there are some tribes that are exceptions more more recently, but by and large, they 've been locked into colonial bondage that gives them few choices over their resources and hence few choices over their lives and means that they have no
0: economic development all right, so with respect to more recent uh, years when the federal government uh decided to get involved, uh, what has been the story then? When the federal government got involved, which really goes
1: almost back to the beginning of the founding fathers, uh, but certainly in 1831 when Chief Justice John Marshall, one of my heroes for, for the most part, uh, said that the relationship of an Indian to the United States government is that of, quote, award to its guardian, end quote. And that has been the relationship that has restricted economic development and restricted the freedoms that Native Americans have. All of their resources are held in trust, or I'm taking to calling it mistrust, by the federal government, meaning that they don't own the resources and they can't make decisions over how to use them. That's everything from coal to oil to the surface land, and so you go to a reservation, Uh, such as, say, the Crow Reservation near where I live in Montana, you can tell which pieces of land are held in trust because... The those lands cannot be developed in any kind of meaningful way. They can't be used as collateral to make investment. And the result is there's little productivity. If you look right next door to those where there are private lands, fee simple lands, uh, they are producing high-valued crops with sophisticated irrigation and all the equipment that we think of in modern agriculture.
0: So it's fair to say uh, this, I mean, even if you're looking at this as a as an experiment in property rights, it's it should be pretty clear, at least at first blush, that uh, the kinds of investments that people might want to make hinge critically on whether or not they own the land. Absolutely. And uh, we had a wonderful discussion with
1: Hernando de Soto, uh, the Peruvian economist who who wrote a, the book entitled The Mystery of Capital and has described resources of, Indi- of indigenous people as Dead capital, and their resources are just that—they're dead capital. They—if you can't leverage those resources, if you can't uh, develop them and make decisions about those resources yourself, then they don't offer an opportunity for economic development of as we're
0: thinking of it here. So, when we think of uh, Native American tribes and tribal lands, we are told that these are sovereign. And that doesn't seem to be in any meaningful way true. The the
1: notion of sovereignty can't be separat- separated from the notion of ownership, I don't think. Uh, and so to say that an Indian nation is a sovereign nation uh, totally misrepresents uh, what opportunities uh, tribes and individuals and tribes have. Uh, to have sovereignty means to to have the freedom of choice, to have the freedom to, to make decisions over the resources that are within your sovereign territory. Uh, that means you have to have jurisdiction. That means you have to have, as a tribe, some ability to be uh, self-reliant, uh, self-reliant in terms of, of generating revenues so that the kinds of things a tribe might want to do collectively can be done. Uh, It also means having jurisdiction over the property rights to those lands and being able to decide, do you want to hold them as a tribe and make those decisions? And in some cases, they're doing that quite well. Or do you want to have individuals, uh, something that I think is is important and useful and is being used in some places, do you want individuals to make those choices? Uh, Otherwise, you don't have sovereignty. If you don't have sovereignty, you don't have
0: jurisdiction. And if you don't have jurisdiction, you don't have freedom. How should uh, tribes and how should the federal government, and to the extent they're involved state governments, uh, move to grant the kind of sovereignty that uh, would spur the kind of economic development that you're talking about? I,
1: I think it's not so much a matter of federal and state governments granting. I think American Indian tribes are going to have to assert that they have those rights uh, they don't they don't they aren't something that can be should be even handled handed down by some authority above them that isn't to say that that they somehow are totally independent of the states in which they reside or the federal government in which they uh, in which they reside but certainly it means they have to take they have to assert some of these powers themselves. And, and some tribes have done that. Uh, there, there's been legislation that has allowed tribes to assert they're taking control of their resources. Uh, I'll use here an example from Montana where the Property and Environment Research Center did a study a couple of years back looking at how the Salish Kootenai Confederated Tribes on the Flathead Reservation managed their timber they took over management of that timber uh, and so in a sense took the timberlands out of trust uh i i don't know for sure whether that's technically legal, <laughs> a legal uh d- definition uh, they may still be somewhat held and you know have this trust umbrella over them but they have the the full authority to manage those Their timber compared to the national forest next door are better managed if you measure the age distribution of trees, the species distribution of trees, and if you measure the economic outcomes. They make $2 plus for every dollar they spend on trees while the federal government barely breaks even and that's because it's a good forest next door. Uh, the White Mountain Apache and the Hickory Apache in Arizona have both taken control of their wildlife populations, and they manage those populations mostly for for large trophy bull elk. They sell those hunts for 20,000 plus for a five-day hunt. Uh, they employ their people as cooks, as guides, as trackers, and as a result, they're making money from that resource and they told the state in that case, get out, stay out, these are our elk. Uh, so it, it takes an assertion on the part of the tribe. But it also requires a, a at the federal level, especially a government that's willing to, to uh, release this uh, stranglehold of trustees. Ship. And our our hope, my hope, is that uh, the current administration might be more amenable to this than others have been. That the Secretary of Interior, where most most of this power resides, uh, will have a, a at least a listening ear to some of the ideas of this alliance
0: for renewing indigenous economies. So, when we think about things like enterprise zones or these geographic areas that are not bound by uh, some sets, uh, certain regulation that the, that the federal government might impose. I think if, if you frame it that way, you would think that uh, lots of people who claim to dislike, you know, overbearing regulation from the federal government might really love this idea of, of seeing uh, indigenous peoples, Native American tribes, take full control and responsibility for the lands that uh, on which they live. I, I think enterprise zones are are a a, a a part of
1: of what can create this environment for economic development. Saying that, uh, most people listening are probably going to say, "Is that what casinos are?" And in a sense, they are free enterprise zones. They require that the tribe compact with the state, and that means negotiate with and come to agreement for where and how many casinos and slot machines they can have, uh, those enterprise zones have worked quite well in areas with large populations. So you take the Pequot in in Connecticut, uh, they do pretty well. Uh, on the other hand, you get to remote locations off of the main flyways of interstate highways especially, and uh, places in North Dakota and Wyoming and Montana are never going to get rich off of casinos. But that doesn't mean they can't have other kinds of free enterprise zones. Uh, the Crow tribe is exploring that possibility. We've met with uh, the chairman of that tribe, Chairman A.J. Not Afraid, how far we can make that go or he can make that go. Again, I, I think it's it takes the tribe and it takes their leaders to assert this. The problem, however, is to uh, come to the to, to some agreement with states and the federal government as to just what zones there would be and what free enterprise means, and then of course, tribes are going to have to and this is this is the tough part establish uh, themselves as as credible governments, and the tribes that have been most successful have have managed to understand what it means to contract with outsiders and honor those contracts. That's not something that's typical throughout Indian country, and it's part of the steep slope
0: that uh, tribes that want to develop are going to have to climb. The assertion of ownership, the assertion of sovereignty seems like a very heavy lift. Is there a a path forward that you see uh, this going well and uh, for these tribes to achieve what they're trying to get what they may try to get
1: there it it's it's definitely a heavy lift there isn't any question about that it it requires first and foremost uh, tribal leadership and tribal governance structures that uh again make these credible commitments to to moving forward rather than just uh uh redistributing the what wealth is there uh so that is a, is the starting point leadership and governance uh once that's in place, and, and again, this whole effort of creating this alliance for renewing indigenous economies is not just about, oh, let's have private property rights. It's more, if anything, about creating governance structures that allow tribes to to establish rules consistent with their their history and their culture. But once tribes can begin to do this, then the lift gets a little easier. Uh, they still have to uh, overcome the the grip that exists especially at the federal level from the Bureau of Indian Affairs. As uh, our friend AJ Not Afraid puts it, uh, Indians refer to the BIA as bossing Indians around. Uh, and so uh, trying to get Washington bureaucracies off their back is is a major step i might note that that's made somewhat worse and hard that that uh, lift even harder because uh many people in the bia are native americans themselves and uh but they're no different than all bureaucrats. They don't like losing power, and as long as they're the ones who hand out the goodies that the federal government hands out, they aren't uh, aren't that aren't that many. But if you're the one
0: handing it out, you don't like to give up that power, and so that makes the lift all much harder. Your task uh, in the short run, uh, as you explained to me before we started recording, is to arm. Uh, tribal leaders with uh, this the kinds of information that we've been talking about here, but also uh, policymakers in Washington. How has that gone so far? This is a uh, for me
1: not not a, a project that's in its infancy. I've uh, held some conferences through the Property and Environment Research Center uh, back in the '80s, looking at property rights and. Indian Economies, the first book I edited on this topic. So I've been thinking about and working on this myself, and there are many other scholars who've been doing so over the years. what what's happened recently is is this creating this project at the Hoover institution under the banner of renewing indigenous economies and that project has uh really three components at the moment the first is research and i guess because i'm a scholar it won't come as any surprise that i think without research we don't have the basis to understand what changes can do with research we we produce evidence that 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 uh, institutions, that, that freedom makes a difference. And so, for example, we had a research workshop at the Hoover Institution two weeks ago, and one of the papers focused on... Uh, irrigation development on utah reservations and no surprise those lands that that are can't be uh, used as capital that are dead capital uh, don't have irrigation they don't produce right next door where the land is is unlocked from trusteeship uh, they can they have far more productivity more irrigation that's just one example of what research is about once we have that research i think the key is to uh, armed tribal leaders with an understanding of what the research means and and what institutions uh, are necessary for change, and so uh, holding some tribal leadership workshops is, is a key part of this Hoover program, and we held one of those two weeks ago. And then finally, uh, it, because it will take some policy changes, we think it's important to hold events in uh washington dc for starters which we did yesterday uh to uh, educate policymakers on these issues uh if we can get them to to at least listen to the ideas and begin to soften them up for that heavy lift that we described a bit ago uh i think we're on on track it'll also take efforts in in more uh, regional areas, we hope to do some programs for tribal leaders in in the Northwest in Montana and the southeast uh, and we 're working with uh, the Nyatahu Research Center in New Zealand uh, because the Maori in New Zealand have many of the same kinds of problems, and with the Tulo Research uh, Institute at Thompson River University in Canada, where again they 're pretty much the same problems we have in the u s We think this three pronged approach in terms of research workshop, uh, leadership workshops, and policy workshops, as well as three-pronged by working with these other groups, uh, we can really uh, at least allow uh, tribal leaders and tribes the option. And I think that's crucial. That's a part of of what freedom means. You have the option to do this.
0: Uh, If they choose to not do it, so be it. Terry Anderson is the former president of the Property and Environment Research Center and a founder of the Alliance for Renewing Indigenous Economies. You can subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.